Shall we pray? And then we'll read from God's word. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for your awesome love for us. Thank you for each one of these, uh, your precious saints here, Lord. Your holy ones that you have chosen and who belong to you, that are precious in your sight, Father. Thank you that you yourself are here with us this morning. That you are not far away from us, Lord, but that you're here in our midst. Father, as we come to your word, as we come to you, for you to teach us and for you to give us wisdom and insight. Father, I pray that you would open up your word to us. We pray that you would um, fill our hearts with understanding of you and how you want us to live, Lord, how you want us to engage with this world in which you rule, but in which darkness is still rife and overpowering, Lord. pray that you would give us um, your help today. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is here. Thank you that this place belongs to you and is under your protection. Father, not just the place, but each of our hearts, Lord. Help us to be open to you and give me um, wisdom and caution in the things that I say today. Uh, that it might be of encouragement to your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, let's read it. Psalm 5. That's page 100, uh, sorry, 449 in the ESV Church Bibles. Psalm 5. And I'll read the heading as well. It says, Everyone got it? To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favour, as with a shield. This is God's word. Now I have to say, first up, this is the first time I've had the privilege of being here. It's also a, a responsibility. But I recognise that I'm just one of each of us, a brother in this church. And we're all together, so I don't presume anything. But God's word has authority over each of us. So if you don't judge me by my performance, because I don't care, 
and uh, I hope that you're able also to concentrate and benefit from it. I hope I don't go too long. So now this is the, the beginning of the year. Happy New Year, by the way, to everyone. I hope it will be a blessed and happy year, one filled with God's grace and abundance. Thank you, Colin. <laughs> um, but we're starting resuming, I should say, uh, a series in Psalms. And just as a, a by way of noting, um, sometimes it's helpful to have in context, in our minds, sort of what we're dealing with. Because there's like 150 Psalms, and they all seem sometimes repetitive and sometimes quite random and off track. But there's, in general, a few broad themes that kind of characterize each of them. But not much real structure in the book but some consistent themes. So the Psalms, they dwell on God's kingdom, the place where he is, his temple, or if from a New Testament perspective, the place where God reigns in heaven and where God's people will delight in him forever. They also dwell on God's rule in the Old Testament, centering around the covenant, which I can expand on that word in a minute. But it's God's rule, the way that he manages the world, God's king, As another theme, both the Davidic archetypal king and the future king Jesus, who is now our present king. And also God's people's response. How should we respond? Like the last few psalms are what they call the psalms of ascent. As people come to God in his holy place, how they're responding to him, their overflowing joy. But we have these broad themes. So God's kingdom, God's rule, God's king and God's people's response to him. But then you've got different genres within them, and one of those genres is what we call lament, where someone has a big whinge. Um, And it's really important for us as God's people now in the present to know that that is valid for us as believers and necessary and incredibly important. And when we dismiss lament, uh, we're dismissing a language that God has given us to communicate with him. And this psalm, this psalm is a lament, but it's more than that. This psalm, in a way, it kind of reminds me of something called a thermobaric weapon. I don't know if you have heard of that. It's an appalling device invented by people to kill other people and just destroy stuff. What it does, it incinerates the atmosphere and sucks the air out of the lungs of its victims and incinerates them. But the way that it operates, it changes the atmosphere. It vaporizes it and sucks it out. And in a way, this psalm reminds me of that because it is an appeal to the reality of God versus the reality that people experience and see on earth. And it changes the definition of what's real around people and overpowers the enemy by doing so. Does that make sense? It changes or defines the reality but this psalm also, it's a, it's a spiritual weapon. It's a supernatural, reality-defining weapon. And in a way, it's, it's like the cry of a soldier pinned down in a trench. It's the, the cry of a kid surrounded by bullies on the street. They're overpowered. They can't do anything. They can't even pop their head up to respond. The enemy has the upper hand and help is really needed. That's the context of the psalm that we've got today. Okay, so as we actually get into the text, let's have a look at this. Um, often in the Psalms, you come across these headers at the t- beginning. So I read it, 
to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. It's in the ESV. Sometimes um, we, we don't give a great deal of weight. Some of these... Uh, some of these headers may have been added later on after the actual psalmist wrote the psalm. However, they do give us a bit of insight into how the psalm was interpreted by those who collected the psalms together and how it was used. So it's interesting as we look at this. First of all, it's a psalm of David. When we think of David, the whole context of everything that David did as a king, as the shepherd boy, everything, his whole life... That's the context that we're supposed to interpret this psalm through. His whole experience, his lived experience with people and with God. So that's the context that we're meant to interpret it. But also it says it's for the choir master. Um, In the NIV it has a, a different term there. And that means that it's actually meant for a formal usage by the people of God. So it made its way, I don't know whether it was used in the temple or what, but it made its way into formal worship, formal usage by God's people when they gather together. And as we go through, you might find that a bit of an odd concept considering some of the things that the psalmist says. And which we, as God's people, are encouraged to say. Alright. So, and then, as I already mentioned, that this is a, a psalm is a lament. It's a big whinge. It's a complaint. It's a cry for help. Um, and so with the flutes, the, the psalms that go before it and the ones that come after it actually specifically say they're for the strings. Um, and this one is for the flutes or for wind instruments of some kind. The significance of that isn't super great, but it's just the way that it was wanted to be felt was that this is a, a longing a sad, a wistful experience, and the music contributed to that. And we, we need to allow, when God's words speak to us, we need to allow the feelings, we need to allow our emotions to interpret it and not just the head. Because sometimes the head can be really stubborn. Um, but God moves us through our emotions and music. And so this is for the flutes, and it's of David. And specifically, as, as some of the books that I read, and I, I personally take this with a grain of salt, but it's helpful to think about. So for context, Psalm 3 has a header, a historical header, that when he was fleeing from his son Absalom, and we don't get another historical header until, is it Psalm 7? So some people say that these few Psalms, between 3 and 7, are to be interpreted in the same context. These are David's Psalms when he's running away from his son Absalom, who... With the help of someone, David's leading helpers took over the kingdom with the support of the majority of the kingdom of Judah that had previously supported David so strongly. His kingdom, his son, his close advisors and friends all turned on him and handed the kingdom over to his son. And that's the context that we're encouraged to interpret this psalm in. Okay. But also, if you think too, this psalm talks about righteousness. And David was a good example, most of the time, of righteousness. You think of King Saul, who was chasing him down to kill him. And he had the opportunity to get him when he was hiding in the cave. And Saul came in, went to the toilet. David could have got him, but he didn't. Cut off a corner of his coat and felt bad for doing that. 
because he knew Saul was God's anointed. David was a man who wanted so much to do what God wanted him to do. All right. So, verses 1 to 2. So when we, when we read this, he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. He's saying, listen, consider, hear. When you're a powerless person, when you don't have any ability to change your circumstances, your only hope is that someone will pay attention to your plight. So this is what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, just listen, please. Just listen. I need you to listen. But who is he crying to? He says it. He says it here. My king and my God. Or in the NIV, Lord, my king and my God. He knows where his plea needs to be directed. And he's directed it to the right source. And he has confidence in the plea because there's a relationship there. He says, my king and my God. Not someone else's king and someone else's God that I don't know and have no real right to claim anything from. But you belong to me and I belong to you. I'm allowed to ask you for help. But on what grounds is he asking? He says, for to you I pray. He's not praying to anyone else. He's not running off to people to find their assistance. He's not praying to some other God. He's not Googling an answer. And in doing this, the psalmist has honoured God by making God the object of the psalmist's dependency. So God is honoured when we show that we need him and have no other alternatives, because that's the reality. God is honoured when we recognise reality. That's really important to know as God's people. So the psalmist has honoured God by making him the object of his dependency, putting God in his right place and rightly drawing on the privileges that that relationship provides for. And how does it provide... What is that relationship? How does that provide? I mentioned before that I would uh, talk a little bit, and I would... I mean a little bit, about this word that we use, covenant. It's probably familiar to most of us, but it's worth covering. Covenant, covering. Um, This is God's promise to his people in the Old Testament, but also his promise to us through Jesus in the New Testament. The way that God has said, this is how my relationships with humanity are going to work. And in the Old Testament covenant, you read it from, technically starts in Genesis, but you know maybe from Exodus through to Deuteronomy, talks about the way that God has set up his plan of how he's going to interact with people, on what basis, what are the rules of engagement, how does God interact with his people and with those who are not his people. How do his people be defined as his people? So that's the covenant, God's promise. And of course, I can't summarize all of that in great detail here. But it's to say that God has said that if you obey me and follow the rules that I have set out for you and how to interact with me, I will be with you, I will be your God, and you will be my people. If you don't do that, then I will treat you like I'm going to treat everyone else and you'll become a wasteland and there will be nothing left for you and there will be nothing left of you. And that was, that was God's promise. That was his covenant. Anyone who would seek him would find him, as Jesus said. Okay, so that's the relationship. So the psalmist, David, he knows that. He knows 
that he can call on God because God has already said that he will answer. And it's really encouraging to me as I read this, I realise that faith in the middle of trouble is not the absence of concern or distress. It's not called faith because you're not worried or you don't have an issue. It's called faith because in the middle of it, you rightly direct your concerns to God in dependency. That's what faith is. It's not like, I'm alright, I don't have a problem, God's in control. It's like, no, I have a problem and God is in control. Does that make sense? Faith. In the midst of trouble. Alright. I, I did have some very daggy sort of section headings. They were how I visualised this. And they were helpful to me. I didn't put them in here because they might not be less helpful to you. But let's go with it anyway. So verses 1 to 2, I've got this heading, Mayday, Mayday. The embattled believer calling for reinforcement. Or else, mommy! Because they really need help. In verses 3 to 8, I've called the rules of engagement and call sign, if you know what a call sign is in the military or on planes or whatever, you're signing in who you are and what your identity is. Or, I'm, on this, I'm with you on this one, go ahead. And verses 8 to 10, so if you take notes in your back, identifying the enemy and bringing in the artillery or smack the baddies daddy and verses 11 to 12 the best offense is a good defense or my hero so that's just to give you a bit of a sense of where we're going but if I were to summarize what this psalm is really trying to get at at its core it's a plea for righteousness and for God to bring the righteousness that the psalmist, that David, that we need. So let's have a look at what his actual prayer is. Because he said, hear me. So what's his actual prayer? So there's no actual, between verses 3 to 7, which is the rules of engagement, or I'm with you on this one, go ahead. Uh, There's no actual requests or commands in these verses between 3 and 7. So he's not actually asking anything yet. He's doing something else. So what is he doing? In his prayer, if he's not asking for something, what's what's all these words about? Uh, It's all in first and second person. So me, my, you. It's really personal. It's relational. Uh, And later on, verses 9 to 11 become third person. All right? Uh, Verse 3, in the morning... So the psalmist, so where are we? O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. I failed to check the time before I started, so I wasn't watching. In the morning. So again we see the psalmist's dependency. Because how can David live life? How can he even begin the day without being assured that God will intervene in the troubles that lie waiting for him? David's close advisors had sided with his son Absalom. Some of his like strategic advisors who knew all his stuff were now on Absalom's side, telling him the way that David thinks. One of them, whose name I forget, was saying, go and attack your dad now before he can get to refuge. Attack him right now, because if you let him get away, he's going to get defense and he's going to be strong again. 
God intervened and there was actually another advisor who went and said, no, 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 no. They'll, they'll, he's an experienced warrior. He won't sleep in the open. He'll be ready and waiting for you. And so God intervened and, and Absalom made a poor decision. But he's got these advisors working against him that know all his secrets, know all his ways that he thinks. And many of the people of Judah had accepted Absalom. Absalom had sweet-talked them, and they loved him. He used to stand in the gate and say, oh, you're not going to get any help in there, but if I was the king, I would help you. And he used to do that. So all the people of, of Judah loved him. And David and his remaining friends and wives were hiding in the open field. And he didn't even try to resolve these issues by himself. In the morning, first thing, straight to God, I can't do anything about this. I've got no power, I have no help, except you. First thing in the morning, he goes to God. It's dependency. Also here in verse 3, the ESV, we've got, I direct my prayer to you. Or I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Um, you might see it in the footnote um, is I direct my prayer to you and in the text itself it's got I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Um, either way, it's a, an expression of prayer, of seeking God. Uh, but that word watching that we've got there, that's not some idle curiosity or even seeing how it goes. I've asked you, and I'm just going to see how it goes. Maybe it'll work out. Maybe you heard me. Maybe you didn't. That's not what watching means. Watching means to wait expectantly. And that's actually what the NIV says as well. And these are two really important words. So wait expectantly. Key words. So the psalmist, he's waiting. David is waiting. The troubles aren't resolved yet. This prayer is in the middle of it. He's still lamenting. He's waiting. But he is also expectant. And it's really important for us as believers in the Lord Jesus, expectancy honours God. It honours God in first, that it considers God faithful. You're expecting God to do something because you know that he's faithful. He's not going to neglect you. He's not going to neglect his purposes. He's faithful. Number two, Expectancy considers God interested because God says that he is. In the covenant, God says, I will care for you. I will know. I will bless your fields and your harvest and your your babies and everything. God will take an interest. And expectancy believes that God is interested because he says he is. And number three, expectancy honors God because the psalmist has the same idea of what is right as God does. Because he has listened to God. The psalmist knows what God likes. He knows what's important to God because he's been listening to him. Okay. Does that make sense? Honors God because God is faithful. God is interested. And he has the same idea of what's right as God does. I've got four fingers. That's because my thumb is sticking up. All right. So the psalmist expects God to honour his request because he knows from the law of God, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, that God is good, great, gracious, and close. 
and has made a covenant promise to respond as such to those who love him. God's going to respond these ways. Good, great, gracious and close. So, but why is God being told what God already knows? Why is the psalmist bothering to say this stuff to God? Doesn't God already know that? And that's a question that comes down to the heart of, why do we even bother to pray? Like, God knows everything. Why do we need to tell him? He already knows. I find it interesting sometimes when we pray, and God, um, don't know what your will is, but if it's your will, um, that's great, that's true, but is it a cop-out? Because God already knows anyway. We don't need to tell him what he doesn't know. But the point of what the psalmist is doing, telling God what he already knows, is because he's presenting a case. He is presenting a case before the judge in heaven, and it's a plea according to the covenant and character of God. He's appealing to what God has said is the reality, and said, this is the reality that you have described, God, and it's because of this that I am able to make this plea in the first place, and it's because... And the plea that I'm making matches what you've described. So you're going to do it because you said you would. It's his, it's like a court case. He's pleading according to the law. The rules of existence that God has made. That's why he's saying what's already known because that's the point. It's meant to be known. A plea according to the covenant and character of God. Now, do we, do we face troubles that don't self-resolve? Do you see evil in a world that's beyond straightening out? And have you realized that it's all out of your control? Who are you going to ask for help? Someone as useless as you? Or will you ask God? Will I ask God? On what basis are we going to ask him? Because not all approaches are worthy of the living God. So I'm a good person, God, so be nice to me and stop letting bad stuff happen because you're a good God and so don't let bad stuff happen. We must come with expectant dependency on the covenant faithfulness of a righteous God. And if you want to write anything down, write that down. Okay? We must come with an expectant dependency on the covenant faithfulness of a righteous God. But it be dependent, we've got to expect him to act because we know that the covenant he's made, the promise he's made, he's faithful to it and to us. And he's righteous. The things that he's going to do in response are right. All right. Moving on, verses 4 to 8. Um, so... Verses 4 and 5 and 7 and 8, they actually mirror and contrast each other. So it's interesting. So we'll have a read through it. Verses 4 to 8. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Some strong descriptions that we might feel uncomfortable thinking about God in those terms. But it's reality. So 
So some of these contrasts and, and the mirroring that goes on. So in verse, the first half of verse 4, it says, God is not pleased with wickedness. And then in verse 8, the psalmist wants God to lead him in righteousness. He's not pleased with wickedness, but he wants to be righteous. So and then in the second half of verse 4, evil people are not welcome with God. But in 7a, or the first half of 7, the psalmist can come into God's house through the abundance of your steadfast love, he says to God. So through God's love, he can come. But evil people are not welcome. In 5, the first half of 5, the arrogant and boastful cannot stand in God's presence. While in the second half of 7, the psalmist prostrates himself. He bows to the floor. He bows down in reverential prayer and worship to God in his dwelling place. So he's not standing either, actually, but for a different reason. He's there before God in reverent awe and fear, but the arrogant and the boastful, they're going to be on their faces anyway. They want to stand, but they can't. And then in the second half of verse 5 and in verse 6, those who do wrong are hated, destroyed and detested by God. Those are strong words that might make us squirm a bit, but it's important we'll come to that. While on the other hand, in the first half of 7, the psalmist is loved with a great love and desires God's straight path and way. So we have these mirrors, these contrasts, all through this section. And the way that God responds differently in each section. But still, we haven't actually had a request yet, remember. The psalmist is still describing the terms of engagement, what right he has to be taking a stand. And all of these contrasts tie back to verse 3, because it actually says, uh, at, verse four, at the beginning of verse 4, it says, For, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. So these verses, between 4 and 8, he's saying, this is the reason, this is the reason why I said verse 3. This is the reason why I wait expectantly. Because I know who you are, I know how you interact, and I know who I am. They're tying back to verse 3, and the expectant hope and dependency of the psalmist's lamenting prayers. So the 4 which begins, verse 4, makes what follows explanatory of the verse that comes before it. God's character encapsulated in his covenant-defined response to the wicked and the righteous, is the motivation for the psalmist's prayer. He knows God's response. He's motivated by it. So covenant-defined response, we said that before, the way that God has promised he's going to interact with people. But also the psalmist identifies with the righteous. Now this is something that we, as believers in Jesus, as New Testament believers, we know that we're righteous through his death and resurrection, taking away our sin. So how can someone in the Old Testament say that they're righteous? Nobody's righteous except God. It says that in the Bible. But in the Bible it also says that he's righteous. It says both. But there's a reason for that. But he's identifying with the righteous. He's saying, I am one of those ones that your covenant says you will defend, that you will intervene on behalf of. I'm one of these guys, one of these people. And it's his boldness to pursue the prayer. If he wasn't righteous, he wouldn't be bold to be able to ask God to intervene and destroy the enemy because he would be one of them. 
But he's not one of them. It's his boldness to pursue the prayer. So because he knows he's among the righteous, he knows what God's response to him will be according to God's covenant promise. But I'd like, if we can, I want to pause there, and it's in the context of what we're reading, but it's an important concept that we need to dwell on to consider the sheer importance of what identification is. So who we are and who others know us to be, to whom we belong and can be understood in terms of. So identity is talked a lot about these days. I identify as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander. I identify as Aussie. I identify as a Gippslander or a, you know, Tigers supporter. People understand you in terms of that and you understand yourself in terms of that, what the expected interactions are going to be. And it's incredibly important for life and every relationship of every kind between people who we identify as. And it's even more important for the spiritual realities of the universe that we live in. Think of it. Who are you? How should God respond to you? How is Satan going to respond to you? How will people respond to you? It defines for you how you relate to God, the world, yourself, your sin, your future. To whom and where do you belong? Where do you belong? And who do you belong to? Like now, today, in fact, spiritually, who are you? What is the label that God applies to you? Do you know? What set of unnegotiable rules applies to your reality and lived experience? The rules of engagement because of your identity. Who are you? How do you interact with life? Think of it like the Ukrainians, for example, today fighting a, a, a battle for their territory in their land where they live. There's been a significant shift in their self-understanding over this time. Whatever you think of the conflict as a whole, people now are, are spray-painting Ukrainian flags on everything and they're wearing Ukrainian badges. And even, even like online computer games and stuff, people are putting up Ukrainian flags as their identification on, on, the, on the games that they're playing. They're associating, they're identifying with them. And the Ukrainians themselves, they see themselves as more Ukrainian now than they did before because they've banded together in a common cause. Identification is powerful. It gives coherence and direction. So who are you? Evangelicals have often, and for a long time, they've got uh, this... Uh, wonderfully theologically precise statement that we rally ourselves around a lot of the time. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Marvellous as that revelation is, but it only describes where you came from and how God brought you to where you are now as a believer. It does not say who you are now declared by God to be. Who? I declare by God to be, which he does again and again and again through the New Testament. God says it again and again and again. So these declarations that God has made, they give us courage, they give us power to act, they give us clarity of focus and a purpose and zeal. When we know who we are, we know what our identity is, we can act. We know what we're doing. 
We know who we're doing it with. So to whom? To whom did the Holy Spirit give birth when you put your trust in Jesus? What did he give birth to? You are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And again, Isaiah 61, verse 3. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. That's who the Holy Spirit gave birth to. Children of God in 1 John 3 and Matthew 5, 9. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. With Christ, next to him. In Romans 8, 17. And Philippians 2, 15. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation in which you shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold out the word of life. Is this you? Is this your identity? Is this how you interpret yourself? How we interpret our congregation here in Mafra? Is this who we are? Because it is who we are. It is. This is us. This is who God says we are. If, in fact, we belong to Jesus. So the psalmist knows his identity before God. And he's clear about the rule by which God relates to the wicked and the righteous. What time do we normally finish? Okay. Oops. All right. So the psalmist, he knows his identity. He knows the rules by which God relates to the wicked and the righteous. And we really, we really need to be clear about both too. Are you righteous, holy, and a delight to God? And if not, if you're not, then he hates you as one whom he wants to wipe off the face of the earth. God identifies you as a representative and a defender of a doomed outpost of a humanity which has rejected him and his definition of what is good. You are counted as a member of a despised horde of traitors who will be destroyed by God's anger like a nuclear bomb leaves nothing but wasteland. But if you show proper respect to God and his offer of peace, if you see that there's no other way, but there is a way, God's own merciful offer of the life of his son in exchange for yours, the wiping out of your sin instead of you through the death of his son in your place, if you surrender to Jesus as the only one who can alter your fate, then God won't just spare you, but will identify you with his son Jesus, his beloved righteous son, just as Jesus identified with you, God's enemy prisoner. Jesus took our place and we get to take his place. God identifies us with Jesus and identifies our sin with him. So who do you belong to? Accept his gifts and be the righteous ones. So verse 8 seems to be the heart of this psalm. You can read it there yourself. Knowing who God is, the rule by which he relates to humanity and the dire consequences for those who continue to be regarded as evil rebels, the psalmist longs for God to lead him in God's righteous way. He pleads, lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. 
Now, how hard it often is when surrounded by enemies to continue to do what's right. It's hard. It's really hard. In David's case, God had helped him before while Saul was trying to find and kill him for no reason. Yet David would not harm or curse God's anointed king. But now his own son had usurped his throne with the help of some of his own key leaders. And a former servant of Saul, while, he was, while David was leaving the city of Jerusalem, fleeing with his family, a former servant of Saul was pelting David with dirt and cursing him as he evacuated Jerusalem with his family in attendance, adding insult to the already humiliating betrayal. Shimei, I think his name was. And if ever a person is tempted to do wrong, it's when they're faced with gross injustice. Like, nah, 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 I'm going to get some of my own back. Like, this sucks. Like, I'm taking you down. But David knows that God is able to do what he can't. He needs to be able to stand before God. He needs that. Now, more than ever, he needs God to lead him in righteousness because it's hard. That's verse 8. That's the, the core of this psalm. He, he knows he's, he's got to be righteous because he can't have that label of wicked and evil on him. He doesn't want to face the same fate. But it's hard to not end up that way when everybody's just so rotten. And how rotten they are. We have a look at that in verse 9. It describes the psalmist's enemies. And it's a heavy indictment and shows its heavy charge. And it shows why he's lamenting in the first place. Who are these guys? So most of the charges, they relate to their words and to their heart or inmost self. These, these enemies, they're twisted liars out to bring him down and kill him with their words. It's a strong language. It says, there's no truth in their mouth. The inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave and they flatter with their tongue. Hello, neighbor. And perhaps more than simply describing his enemies in their evil behavior, like in verse 9, verse 10, it might be the hardest part of this psalm for us to relate to. Because the psalmist calls on God to punish these people. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. And because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Now this, this way of speaking is called an imprecation or a curse. He's cursing. Like, damn you to hell. Literally. Literally is what he means. We would easily remember Jesus' command to bless... And do not curse and love your enemies. We're familiar with those. They're some of the most familiar parts of the Bible, aren't they? In which even God himself has done that for us. He's loved his enemies, hasn't he? We were his enemies, he loved us. So how can, how can we even say that we're going to use this psalm in our own mouths? This entire psalm was intended for formal public service. According to the header, at least. Because it is, in fact, a spiritual weapon of war, is what this psalm is. Just as the psalmist draws on God's covenant for his own strengthening, 
he also draws on the same covenant and its warnings against disobedience and rebellion. It's the same. It's one and the same. One and the same reality that God has defined. It's God's righteous character just to despise and reject evil and to eliminate it from his presence. And it's also the character of the righteous person. God's righteous ones to hate evil and pursue its destruction. But this is not simply the psalmist's own grudge. Just just like, get these guys because they're annoying me. It's because he himself is a representative of God's kingdom. Remember, he is identified with the righteous. He's identified with God's kingdom. So he's representing it. So accordingly, any attack against him is an attack on the kingdom of God. And he is eligible for the protection afforded by that kingdom. Now, you might start to think, I have filter in images of Jesus in this context now. Like Jesus said, the insults that they insulted you with have fallen on me. Should have put more spaces in here. I can't find my spot. So he's eligible for the protection afforded by that kingdom that he represents. But the difference for us now, us as believers in Jesus reading this now, is that our battle is not against flesh and blood. As it says later on in the New Testament. So through Jesus' death, God revealed that he's distinguishing between the sin and the sinner by attributing the sin to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness to the one once known as sinner. So from now on, like the Bible says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. You've heard that before. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. We need to take the words of this psalms on our lips. We should. We need to pray this over Mafra. We need to pray it over all the families in this town who are under constant, brutal, deceptive attack from the spiritual forces of darkness, who only wish to destroy them in Mafra. To destroy them, their relationships, their health, their community, and to keep them as far as possible from the kingdom of God and those who represent it. Satan wants to stop people connecting with us. He wants to stop us connecting with people. He will shut down conversations and make phone calls happen at the wrong time and all this stuff. Or cars break down and things just don't work out so that we can't even have a conversation. Or we just get busy and distracted. But what's going on here in Mafra? Like, I've been disturbed as I've lived in here for nearly two years. Just how many people that I've met in Mafra in our small circles, this is not this, the proportion is, is disturbing. How much destruction is in people's lives? Youth pregnancies, disastrous hookups, regular breakups. Divorce mostly seems to describe the older generation because the younger generation didn't even get married in the first place. Addictions, money problems, problems with the law. Not to mention domestic violence and stuff like that, which doesn't usually get mentioned, but you... You see the telltale signs of it. But they've got happy slogans on their calendars. They're desperately trying to boost their kids' self-esteem. You're a good kid. You'll do fine. You're shouting at your mum, but you'll, you'll get there. 
They're being eaten alive all around us. And the churches, we're not spared either. When I, where I came from in Sydney and other places where I lived, so much, so much destruction in families, divorce, breakups, all this sort of stuff. Some of us have been affected by that directly. Locally, even here. The assaults by the enemy are relentless. We can't beat Satan. We can't transform Mafra. Right? But like David, like those who sang this psalm, we need to take up the assurances and convictions that we find here and declare them first in the courtroom of heaven and then to people. God's reality. We need God to do what we can't and overturn the power of sin and Satan around us. But we ourselves must not give in because the evidence of Jesus' victory depends on it. We've got to be righteous. We've got to be seen to be righteous. And we've got to be. Very briefly. So in many team sports, they say the best offense is a good defense. And that's how these last two verses should be regarded. The whole psalm, really, is like that. But particularly these last two verses. So while the trouble still continues, while David is still waiting for his deliverance, he lays hold of what he hopes for by faith. He says, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So as he does all through this psalm, again, David invokes the covenant privileges that come from belonging to God. He asks God to protect his people so that they can continue to delight in and serve him. But not only that. The word exalt is what you do after you've won a victory. Yeah, we did it! So by defending his righteous ones against the evil enemy, by not allowing them to be overpowered and overthrown, God achieves for them the victory that they could not achieve themselves. The victory by God defending them. What rejoicing there was among the survivors of World War I when peace was declared. You see those old photos? I don't think any of us maybe had direct relatives who may have been there. But you see the photos and there's just streets and streets of people just dancing and shouting and happy. And how much joy, what relief for the prisoners in the prison camps after World War II, when they were finally released. They'd even hear the declaration of peace, uh, peace until somebody just unlocked the gate. And suddenly, like, it's over. They're going home. Some of them. And how much joy for the families of the many pastors and other believers who were jailed for 10, 15, 20 years in some communist countries when some of them finally came home. How happy the families were. And how much joy should we have now, knowing that God has brought us out of our sinful past, brought us into the freedom of the Son of God, as the Bible says, and how much more when it's all done, when we see him face to face, and we wear our crown of victory along with him, beside him, as co-heirs with Christ. It's going to be good. 
going to be good. And it is good. But David isn't just doing positive self-talk. We hear a lot of that these days. Positive self-talk. What he's doing, he's declaring a powerful reality that shatters the enemy. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favour as with a shield. It's a reality. It's true. So, for us, don't lose heart. Your physical reality, my physical reality, and your spiritual reality are one thing to God. Not two things. But the goal of both is God's glory through you. Physical reality and your spiritual reality. So don't think that your need is irrelevant because it's not spiritual. Spiritual. Because these are the very things that spiritual warfare is fought over. Spiritual warfare is fought over your families. It's fought over your community. It's fought over your health and your mental health. That's where the battle is. So if you have a complaint, bring it to God. And if your struggle is beyond you, which most of the time it is, get help from beyond you. Fight for for the winning side. Love righteousness with all your soul. Hate evil and reject it with every aspect of your being. Your mind, your emotions, your hands and feet. You are, after all, a child of God. You are a child of God if you have taken refuge in Jesus. He will cover you with his favour. Out of all the billions of people in the world, you will truly be one of his favourites. He will treat you special. He will pay attention to you. He will notice you. He will hear you and give you his attention as soon as you speak. And he will give great weight to what you say. And he will love you and me. Be righteous. Drop your sin. Throw it far. And be righteous. Take Jesus' righteousness as your identity and live as if that's what you are. Because God has declared in the heavenly places and for eternity that that is what you are. You are his child, an heir of God and co-heir with Christ. God will deliver you and he will not fail. Only may he lead us in his righteousness because of our enemies. And make his way straight before us. So that plea of the psalmist, in God's reality, this is what I know the outcome ought to be. This is what I know God wants the outcome to be. So this is what I'm declaring. And this is where I take my stand. And that's where we take our stand too. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, you are the one who has shaped this world. You define it. You define what's right and what's wrong. Lord, we are a small community of believers here, but in you we are mighty, because you are mighty, and you are in our midst. Lord Jesus, make us righteous. Lead us in your righteousness. Help us to choose what pleases you, and to reject what you hate, and to hate what you hate. But to love the people around us, Lord, who are constantly being destroyed, eaten by things that they don't even know about, Lord. 
Father, help us to shine your light and beat back the darkness. Help us to hide in your protection. Because where evil cannot prevail, Lord, you are prevailing. We thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you that you go ahead of us. And continue to do that in this year, in 2023, and forever, Lord. Uh, This year belongs to you and so do we. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.